This episode of New Politics was released on the 23rd of September, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, climate change and the Liberal Party's repeat push for nuclear energy, the cases against Richard Boyle and Julian Assange are continuing and they need to stop, some people say that the mainstream media is mediocre and we find out why, and an update on the Voice to Parliament referendum. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. I'm with Alan Joyce. I won't fly Qantas either. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription and you can also subscribe on Substack. But whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. We just had a week of 35 degree heat in Sydney and while that might be okay for the middle of summer, we've just started the spring season and we've never had temperatures like this in the middle of September and there have been many warnings that this next summer season could end up being as bad as the bushfire season from 2019-20 where half of Australia was affected by bushfires and severe weather events in every state and territory. We did have the Premier of New South Wales, Chris Minns, also give the warning that communities need to be prepared for extreme heat this summer, but there's no point in telling people to be prepared if the support isn't provided to them in the first place. But this is yet another warning to governments as well, that more action needs to be taken on climate change issues. The push to reduce greenhouse emissions by 43% by 2030 isn't going to change what's happening in a few months time. A push for renewable energy over fossil fuel isn't going to come in time either, but there does need to be a much stronger, much faster, and much clearer action taken now so we don't have to deal with the frequency of these events in the future. It's incredible how very few media sites have actually called this out for what it is, global warming. We've had catastrophic fires in Europe, catastrophic floods in Southeast Asia. We've had earthquakes and earthquakes are related to global warming because of the way that plates expand and contract due to temperature. So it's funny how a lot of the media most of whom are owned by oil and gas producers and coal producers in Australia anyway, are not drawing the logical conclusion that breaking the records every year might be a good thing if you're an athlete or other things you can break records in, putting people into phone boxes or <laughs> sitting on a pole. Most of that stuff is either a show of the human spirit or benign fun that nobody really cares about, but hey, you got your name in the book. This type of record breaking means that 40-year plans and 50-year plans that we know aren't going to last. One change of government and it's 10 years back again. Now, I'm a tiny little bit optimistic that the next change of government will not be the current Liberal Party and National Party. Of course, we don't want the wolf in sheep's clothing come through and more of the same. But the time for political compromise is long past. We're not dealing with changes to superannuation here where 
you've got to balance the interest of employers and you've got to balance the interest of employees and the interest of welfare groups and all that's, you know, I'm not disparaging any side there. I know what sides I'd be closer to, but you can see where you need to balance these arguments to come out with a good solution where nearly everyone's going to be happy. In this case, if it's not fixed, no one's going to be happy, not even the people who um, benefit because there's going to be no planet to live on. I think this continues that case of short-term political interests taking precedent over long-term action. And I don't think there's a major country in the world that takes climate change issues seriously because they're the ones that have got the most to lose and they've got the most economic power to keep it that way. And that's China, the United States, pretty much all of Europe and Australia. And sure, they might be getting some action underway, but it's just not enough. And we keep getting all of these warnings, as you mentioned, David, going far back as the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, 90s. Every decade, we're told that urgent action is needed. And each decade, that urgent action becomes even more urgent. We keep getting all the messages that something needs to be done. Bushfires in Australia, floods in Australia, all those bushfires in the US and Europe. Libya is flooded now as well. And all of these incidents were part of that dystopian nightmare that we were all warned about about 30 years ago. And now it's becoming a reality that if nothing was done about climate change, that these events were going to become more extreme and more frequent. And that's exactly what's happening at the moment. But in Australia, we're only getting piecemeal approaches to legislative changes. And sure, a 43% reduction in greenhouse emissions is good, especially when compared to a non-binding 26% that the Liberal Party proposed. The Australian Greens want a reduction of at least 78% and pushing towards 90% reductions. And that's probably what's needed, a comprehensive and fast solution, because that's probably the only thing that will make a difference at this stage. Yeah, we almost need an ultra-government body to come in and say, right all this mining here is stopping and of course the notion of carbon credits has been a total failure because we just buy them off chinese companies or they buy them off us and it's not actually reducing the percentage of stuff going into the air it may be just centralizing it a little bit if there were aliens to come to earth don't you think they'd look at us and think what a bunch of fools they give all their resources to a very few people these people then destroy everything they can with it and everyone keeps accepting that this is the status quo we could call it the joyce law and i call it the joyce law in that alan joyce finally gets consequence when he steals from the rich if he'd left it at job keeper he'd have left with the deep regard of the business community but he then started cancelling their flights it's the same here while it's not affecting the wealthy nothing's going to be done What needs to happen is Malibu or northern Sydney or French Riviera need to start to see the full effects in a real way, hopefully without anyone being hurt or killed. There's been too many hurt and killed as it is now. But until they start to feel the effects of climate change, nothing's going to happen. I guess the other issue has to be the longevity of legislation and working out a way of solidifying any legislation so it is there for the long term and not just change at the whim of a new government. The 
Carbon pricing scheme that was introduced by the Gillard government in 2012, that was effective in reducing emissions, even though it was only in operation for a year, but it was scrapped by the Abbott government in 2013. And guess what? Emissions went up. So the politics of that situation were absolutely awful. And if the carbon pricing scheme was still in place, it would have generated $80 billion and reduced emissions significantly. It wasn't the be-all and end-all, but it would have been a significant tool to reduce emissions and raise government revenue. But as usual, politics gets in the way. And I'm not sure how you would do this. It might be a case where the longer the legislation is in place and the longer the effects of that legislation are in place, well, people get used to it and it's very difficult to change whether there is a change of government or not. And no one talks about getting rid of unleaded petrol because it's been in place for over 30 years. And the coalition did campaign to bring back leaded petrol in the early 1990s and that was a year after the unleaded petrol system was introduced. So it might just be a case where a government has to implement the change and just hope that it's in office for long enough so that any change that's proposed by their opponents is just too difficult to make. Yeah. Our system of government is set up in such a way that it's hard to make hard decisions and that's because people are scared of losing their seats. I don't quite know how you beat that because democracy is important and everyone having a say. It gets back to better education, better media, people understanding what's going on rather than letting them get away with working through ignorance and secrecy, which is exactly what's happening. If we can distract you with celebrity news, if we can distract you with sporting news, if we can distract you with fashion news, you won't engage. And if you're not engaged, it means that they can get away with it. And I'm not knocking any of those. It's fine to be interested in those things, but not at the expense of the important stuff that's happening, if that makes sense. And the other issue that I've noted is that whenever we do have any type of calamity, whether it's a fire or flood or other extreme weather event, there are always calls for something needing to be done about it. And then there's small changes that are made here and there and it all dissipates and not much happens until the next calamity and then the cycle just continues. So it's quite evident that governments of all persuasions don't take climate change too seriously, even though it's the biggest international security issue, as far as I'm concerned. And, and it is split into a left and right issue where conservative governments deny that climate change is a big issue and centre-left governments at least try to do a little bit about it. But a lot more just needs to be done on this. And I'm not just commenting on local politics. This is a phenomenon all around the world where very few governments enact meaningful climate change action. And if you've got a problem, well, it's always best to hold a conference and the next COP convention on climate change is at the end of this year. It's going to be held in Dubai and they'll be introducing the first global stock take of emissions, energy transition and climate finance. And that's something that they'll then revisit every two years. But again, this is too slow. In Australia, we're still arguing over whether Liddell Power Station should have been closed down or not. We're actually opening up more coal mines as well, and it looks like we'll be using coal well into the future. And I realise that there's a lot of politics involved in this space, and there's local politics, there's geopolitical concerns as well. But generally, if there's good policy that's set up in the first place by governments, not just in Australia, but all around the world, it ends up leading to a space where there's good political outcomes for a government. But the problem is that governments find it too difficult to set up that good policy in the first place. Yeah, it's easier to allow something that's been traditional to go on than to stop it. We know that there's going to be high court challenges and there's going to be all kinds of delays and it's a type of thing that might 
outlive the government. So it's just kick it on down the road and let somebody else deal with it. The trouble is, is that we're at the stage now where we're, we've run out of road. We've got to really sort out what we're going to do. And we don't have 50 years to discuss this anymore. We've got a five maybe and 25% reductions are just not good enough anymore. We've got to do 60, 70, 80, 90% reductions, even down to a, working out a point where there'll be 100% reductions. I don't think we'll ever get to 100 without massive reforms to the technology of mining. And I'm not saying they're not possible. I, I'm not an engineer. I couldn't begin to think how to sort that out. But there's absolutely no question that stuff has to be done now. And I'm hoping that some of our more principled federal politicians and state politicians will work it out. And just like the seasons, it's that time of the year that the Liberal Party brings up the issue of nuclear energy. And it's just like clockwork or whenever they've got a political problem that they want to gloss over. And they just ramped up the debate a few months ago and they're bringing up the same points now and over and over and over again. And the question always has to be, well, why do they keep doing this? There have been so many reports that have been commissioned into the nuclear industry in Australia over the past 60 or 70 years. The most recent one was in 2019, commissioned by Angus Taylor when he was the energy minister. And all of these reports over the past 60, 70 years have all concluded that nuclear energy is not viable on economic, environmental and political grounds. So the reason that they keep pushing all of this is not so much that they want a nuclear industry in Australia, but it's a political point of difference that the Liberal Party can keep pushing, but only when they're in opposition. And since 1996, the Liberal National Coalition has been in office for 20 of those years, and not once do they make any serious push for nuclear energy or try and overturn the ban on nuclear energy. And there's also this current belief that it was the Hawke government that banned nuclear power in Australia. It was actually the Howard government that prohibited nuclear power in 1998. But the point is that they've never tried to change that while they've been in government. So once again, it's politics as usual for the Liberal Party, seeking a point of division over an issue that they've got no intention of ever introducing and just trying to score political points. It's an easy thing. It seems to me that the far right the relatively far right, like to focus. The the agents of chaos like to focus on one thing. So in Britain, the last four prime ministers have been dominated by Brexit. In America, if you are a Republican, you are dominated by Trump and, and dealing with the fallout from Trump and et cetera, et cetera. Here, they haven't quite found their thing that they can completely derail everything with. The no case sort of works, but that has collapsed, or it's at least not as effective as they were hoping it would be. The only thing really they've got is nuclear reactor and the, the hope that they can totally dominate everything else so that nobody can get anything else done. Trouble is, there's just not the passion, the will, nor the sense for it here. So I suspect it will last for a while till they can find something more chaotic and more destructive. I note they had that kid on. I watched a tiny bit of it and realized why I don't watch Q&A very often. And I'm not against having 17-year-olds on talking about stuff, but he clearly had no idea what he was doing. And whoever's put him up to that has really done him a disservice. 
Oh, and I get, and I guess just on, just like there is on climate change, there is that schism between left and right on energy policy. And again, sure. this is an international phenomenon, not just in Australia. Nuclear power and fossil fuel energy pushed by the right, and renewable energy pushed from the left. And along with this push from the Liberal Party for nuclear energy is the push for small modular reactors. And again, this is a circular argument. Every couple of months, like clockwork, the Liberal Party or the National Party, sometimes both bring up nuclear energy. And as you referred to before, on the ABC Q&A program, they also had a program dedicated to nuclear energy, even though they had a very similar program dedicated to nuclear energy just two months ago, and they even had the same panellists. There was William Shackle, who is the head of a group called Nuclear for Australia, and it's almost as though the ABC is trying to create Australia's version of Greta Thunberg, but on the other side of the debate. <laughs> and here's a snippet of some of his talking points. This is clearly getting us nowhere. The cost of nuclear is clearly highly contentious. And you know what the best way to find out the cost of nuclear energy is? It's to lift the nuclear energy ban because at that point... Because at that point, you can actually see nuclear reactors, what they will cost, because at this stage, no company is able to propose for nuclear reactors to be built in this country. And to what the uh, Minister for Climate Change and Energy said about it being a distraction, well... Look, we should have all options on the table. And what I would say is I'd bring out, this is the ban on nuclear energy. It's a single A4 piece of paper. And if the government was serious about reaching net zero and having a guaranteed path to net zero, well, they'd get rid of this. They'd get rid of this prohibition. Now, this is such an ill-informed debate. And we saw it live on television and we saw it on the ABC, which, in my opinion, has gone so far downhill that it's reached the point of the underground. And... Sure, there is a ban on nuclear energy in Australia, and that was enacted by the Howard government, as we indicated before. But a ban on nuclear power isn't a ban on the costings of nuclear power. And every government report since the 1960s has included costings on nuclear energy. And and there's also the Zwitkowski report from 2006, which is the most comprehensive report on nuclear energy, in my opinion. And that detailed all the costings and it showed that it's unviable. And I think that this kid is really dangerous. He's actually a member of the Institute of Public Affairs. And I don't want to disparage young people getting involved in politics or debates about energy, but he's got no idea about the world. And there's so many red herrings in this debate, you know, lift the ban so we can get costings on nuclear energy. Well, we've already got those costings and there is no ban on getting those costings. Well, the other question is, well, what do you do with solar panels and wind turbines when they reach their use-by date? Well, you recycle them just like you do with virtually every other technology. And the other question, well, it's the cleanest form of energy. Well, no, it's not. It's the cheapest form of energy. Let's use it. Again, it's not the cheapest form of energy. If it was, we would have started using it a long, long time ago. Yeah. Some of the arguments I've seen are ridiculous. Yeah, what happens when a wind turbine wears out? What happens when a nuclear reactor wears out? It's much easier to replace a wind turbine. People who have no interest in the environment suddenly worried about birds flying into the propellers. I don't see how that happened. Most birds are smart enough to stay away from it. It's not like a plane which is constantly moving and a bird can get caught in slipstream, etc. It's just insane, some of the, the things. My main concern, and I'm told that I shouldn't be so concerned by this, by progressive people, the disposal of the waste and the risk of meltdown. And I know the risk of meltdown is extremely low, but we've had four major meltdowns and that's four too many. 
Now, there's hundreds around the world, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, look at the tiny percentage and they were all 20 years apart or 10 years apart. And But with Chernobyl, they'll be dealing with that for tens of thousands of years. With Fukushima, that area is now useless. Same with Long Island. These aren't big areas, but it doesn't take much. And, of course, the more you bring in, the more chance there is of an accident, a meltdown, an overheat. You can get pretty foolproof, but it needs to be 100% foolproof. And and if it can be demonstrated that it is 100% foolproof, I'll maybe change my mind. Except it's also more expensive at the moment than coal. And it takes 15 years. Some people are saying, oh, it doesn't take 15 years. It takes 10 years. doesn't really solve the problem in the short term, does it? <laughs> and I think it was the chaser who pointed out that the mob who couldn't build car parks are telling us to trust them to build nuclear reactors. And that's a fair point too. Oh, well, I guess the cost is the one of the biggest factors involved. And I do know of nuclear scientists who do say that it is a safe form of energy and certainly safer than it might have been 30 or 40 years ago. But they say that the biggest barrier to nuclear energy in Australia is cost and politics. But even if you do get politics out of the way, it still comes down to cost being the biggest factor. And it's not just me saying that. William McKibben, he's a conservative economist and former Reserve Bank board member. He also worked on the Zwickowski inquiry into nuclear energy. And he suggested that the nuclear energy would have just been barely viable in 2006. And it's totally uncompetitive when compared to renewable energies in 2023. So essentially, his argument is that if we started building a nuclear power plant in 2006, say in Peter Dutton's electorate of Dixon, it would be just coming online now and it probably would be already an uncompetitive white elephant. And I guess that's what the proponents of nuclear energy don't understand. Energy companies aren't going to listen to a 17-year-old kid on Q&A or listen to Peter Dutton who talks about nuclear energy purely for political reasons and they're not going to listen to all of this and then think, ah, those guys are right into nuclear, so let's pour billions of dollars into setting up a nuclear power plant and what's the money roll in 15 years later. These are hard-nosed business people. They're not going to invest money into nuclear unless they can see money and cash flow opportunities. And at the moment, they're just not seeing that. So the upshot to all of this is that the Liberal Party wants to use nuclear energy as a point of difference in the lead-up to the next federal election campaign as, as a distraction as well. And I don't even think the Liberal Party is serious about nuclear energy either. They never did anything about it for the 20 years that they were in government over the past 27 years. And to me, it just seems like it's a lot of hot air and it's probably nuclear-generated hot air as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it will get some of their supporters going. It will get some of their... It will get some people who are undecided thinking, oh, maybe it is a good idea. But ultimately, when they get back into office, it will be forgotten. They might do another report. Having said that, Badgerys Creek Airport, which was first suggested in 1946, has been started. So you never know, but I'm pretty confident that this one's not going to go too far. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon.
We also had whistleblowing coming up in federal politics during the week and there's two issues that have arisen. The federal government is still proceeding with the criminal trial of Richard Boyle and he went public on some of the appalling practices of the Australian Taxation Office in 2017 and it was based around some of the heavy-handed tactics that the ATO was using to extract money that was owed to them by taxpayers and some business owners. And six years later, the federal government is still going to proceed with this prosecution. And we've been calling for the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, to drop this case for some time. He did drop the case against Bernard Caleri last year, and we were anticipating that the case against Richard Boyle would also be dropped. But so far, this hasn't been the case. Richard Boyle could be jailed for 46 years if there's a successful prosecution against him. And the Attorney-General could call off this case tomorrow if he wanted to. There's no public interest in pursuing this case, and it just does need to be called off. One of the first things, in fact, I think it was the first thing the government did, was release the Muruguppan family, who were the Biloela family. And that was seen as a good thing. It's now starting to seem like that was just a piece of petty politics employed to annoy the outgoing government rather than any moral or ethical sense of right. Bernard Collery did the right thing. Richard Boyle did the right thing, it seems. If it is felt that it should go to trial because some of this stuff does need to be tested in a court of law, give us the argument as to why Mark Dreyfus is smart enough and articulate enough to to give us these arguments. Prima facie, both men did the right things. They saw wrongdoing and they reported it. We've got to encourage this behaviour. We've had a decade of one of the world's worst democratic governments running Russia over the conventions of democracy. If Labor was serious, one of the things they'd do would be to start to restore trust in some of these public institutions and letting Boyle at least be seen to be given due process, and that's at the very least, would help restore trust in the government and, I suspect, go a long way into ensuring the government's next election, which will allow them to continue this long-term vision they keep banging about but don't seem to be doing that much about. But I think this is a test for the federal government, and it's also a question of what sort of government does it want to be. And ignoring all of these calls to dismiss the case against Richard Boyle means that Mark Dreyfus is in the same league as Michaeli Cash, Christian Porter and George Brandis. And they were the attorneys general in the coalition that refused to do anything about Richard Boyle's case. And those three are essentially suburban small practice lawyers that somehow managed to become the highest law officer in the land and totally besmirched the reputation of the office of the attorney general. And why would Mark Dreyfus want to be associated with them? And Labor is meant to be the party of legal reform and changing laws that don't act in the interests of the public. And this would be a prime example of that. And sure, there might be legal considerations to take into account with the newly formed National Anti-Corruption Commission, and I don't know exactly what that would be. There might also be issues about setting the precedent, as you referred to before, David, but it's just really hard to understand why Mark Dreyfus doesn't want to drop this prosecution. It- I do wonder who is behind this and why Labor is not. And again, if it is about following due process, that's fine. Set an early court date. Let's have it out. Let's hear about it. Let's work it out. And when the decision made, let's make sure that the decision is open, fair and accessible to everybody. And hopefully the decision would be not guilty. So that's the case about Richard Boyle. But for Julian Assange, there's 63 federal MPs and senators that have 
been calling for the United States government to cease their extradition of Julian Assange and drop the charges against him. He's currently in Belmarsh Prison in London, and if the charges are dropped, he'll be released. Now, it is a little bit different to the Richard Boyle case because it's concerning US law, and it's up to the US president to decide what to do in this case, not the Australian government. And sure, they're still trying to put as much pressure on the US government, and that hasn't been that much, but they are limited in what they can actually do. And there's also a cross-party delegation of six Australian MPs who are currently in Washington lobbying the US government to end the prosecution of Julian Assange. And the member for Kuyong, Monique Ryan, she is a part of that delegation and here's what she had to say about it. What we were advocating for today is that for Julian Assange to be home by Christmas, we know that he has a wife and two small children and we've been telling the Americans that we believe that this needs to happen. Now, our feeling is that it is a, his prosecution is a political process. It's not one that's based on law or on the proper judicial uh, process. This is a political case. The charges are political and the means to resolving them is, is via politics. And so what we are hoping to do is to lay the groundwork for the Prime Minister when he comes to the States later uh, in the year, in about a month, to meet with President Biden and, and basically communicate the same thing that we've been saying today and the message that we've been hearing from our electorates. That, that it's time for this process to be brought to a close. And we, we do hope that the US government will be open to that suggestion. But one of the things that we talked about was public interest. And so both in Australia and in the US, any prosecution that is undertaken has to take into account public interest. And our argument was that on, in many respects, public interest in this case would be better served by ending the extradition proceedings dropping the charges and allowing the whole case to come to a national, a, a natural end. It would be the right thing for Julian Assange. It would be the right thing for the relations between Australia and the US, but it would also be the right thing in terms of international justice and the potential replications of this legal case on the freedom of the press, both in the US and internationally. Irrespective of how difficult this might be, the prosecution of Julian Assange also has to end. And I think it's also a case where if the US-Australia alliance is to have any meaning, and if it's supposedly a true partnership of equals, well, Julian Assange needs to be released. So there's two cases of Australian whistleblowers. One is relatively easy because it's solely up to the Attorney General to make a decision and no one else. Julian Assange is more complicated, but still... Two different cases, but the same end result is needed. Both need to have their prosecutions dropped, and Julian Assange just needs to come home. Yes, and Julian Assange is the, th as you said, is the blot on the Labor Party's stated commitment to justice. It'd be different if we could see any wrong, actual wrongdoing, ethical wrongdoing from these men. Now I know Assange is a more difficult case because he's dealing with confidential. Um, and highly confidential and secret documents, etc. And that's a whole other argument of ethics to go into. But as a journalist, it was his job to shine light in the places where governments don't want it shone. And you'd think that countries that built themselves on the notion of free speech, the United States of America, Britain, all the countries in Northern Europe, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, you'd think that all of those countries would be in favour of allowing Julian Assange out. Now, free speech, of course, is the freedom to criticise the government. 
It's not the freedom to call people nasty names. It's not the freedom to disparage or even censorship. The government can censor whatever it likes, but it, it should be criticised for it. And that's where the notion of free speech comes in, of course. I think it would damage the government less to deal with these cases properly. And I'll be fair too. I keep hearing whispers that they are making stern and tough representations to the United States about Assange. But it would do the government no harm to clear up all cases as quickly as they can. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon. There's also been some more calling out of the media during the week and it's the constant strategy that journalists use of a lot of people have said or some people say and it seems to be the case on the nuclear energy debate. Here's the question being asked of the Minister of Industry, Ed Husich. It's a big challenge. We're trying to convert an old energy grid uh, into one that is suited for the times where we've got to reduce emissions and find new ways to get energy to people. And nuclear is just completely off the table. You won't counter anything that the coalition's putting up. Well, if you look at it, solar and wind are the cheapest, quickest ways to get energy generation. And what the coalition is proposing is something that they never really worked on when they were in government. And if they were to get it back into government, it would take ages to generate energy and it would be much more costly. But is the $378 billion that the Minister Chris Bowen put up as the cost of what that would be actually accurate? Because uh, a lot of people have said that's a bit over the top. And this is a tactic that a lot of journalists use, and it means that it's just based on hearsay or just a bit of laziness that someone in a cafe said to them or a taxi driver or maybe someone just in the street. The most famous of these incidents was the George Negus interview of the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, back in 1981. Why do people stop us in the street almost and tell us that Margaret Thatcher isn't just inflexible, she's not just single-minded, on occasion she's plain pig-headed? And won't be told by Would anyone. you tell me who has stopped you in the street and said that? Ordinary Britons. Where? In conversation. But I thought you had just come from Belize. Oh, this is not the first time we've been here. Will you tell me who and where and when? Ordinary Britons in restaurants, How in many? Camps. How many? I would say at least one in two. I'm sorry, it's an expression I've never heard. Tell me who has said it to you, when These, and These where. are people that we meet in passing. But and we obviously raise the question of the, the state of their country with them. And they tell us, yes, we have a tough part Prime Minister, but she's a little bit pig-headed. She won't be told by anybody. Isn't this interesting? Even the tone of voice you're using is changing from what you used earlier. And this is how politicians should treat journalists. When they hear rubbish, they should call it out. Just like George Negus was called out in 1981, journalists have to do better than just loading up a question with some people say, because it could be absolutely anyone or it could just be absolutely made up. And... 
you know, we're guilty of this too, but often these are private conversations and there is the ethical thing. An investigative journalist has to be held to a higher standard. What is your source? What is your proof? What is your evidence? Okay, if it's someone who has to remain anonymous, we can acknowledge that and, and work with that. I don't think sources should be revealed in certain cases, but you can't go around willy-nilly stating facts that aren't true. Many people, someone says, <laughs> I thought George Negus was an excellent journalist on the whole, but never thought much of Margaret Thatcher. But I didn't think that was one of George's best moments, except, I guess, watching two highly self-confident people clash was good television, inverted commas. My feeling is that this is really sloppy journalism and it would be more honest if the journalist in question just said, well, this is what I think rather than some people say or even better, have some reliable research to back up your claims. And in this day and age, politicians are generally more respectful of journalists, but this is never reciprocated. Daniel Andrews is shouted at virtually every media conference that he presents. There were all those attacks from journalists directed at Anthony Albanese during the last federal election campaign, but a lot of political journalists are self-important deals. And I don't know if they've watched too many episodes of West Wing, but they're not the most important part of the political system. And I don't know if it's a case where advisors keep telling ministers that getting angry with journalists is not good PR or it looks bad for them on television, but every minister should receive a DVD package of that interview between George Negus and Margaret Thatcher and maybe a few of Bob Hawke and Paul Keating showing their disdain for journalists and a few from John Howard as well. And maybe the DVD package should include this exchange from Daniel Andrews during the week. You've got all the pretty group lobby heads here. There's no lobby group from mum and dad Victorians who are trying to rent out a property and make a bit of extra cash. And, and why do you believe? And why do you believe that they won't be able to do that? On what basis do you believe that seven dollars fifty per hundred dollars would mean they won't be able to do that? And are you seriously are you seriously putting it to me that short stay arrangements in New York are directly relevant to short stay arrangements here? I'm just stating. No, no, you just no, no. Sorry, you're, you're you're telling the story. You just put it to me that because of its because of its international comparison, it's going to mean mum and dad investors aren't able to. Short stay well, the properties they own. Land taxes. They're dealing with the COVID levy. Well, but you didn't ask about that. You, you, no, well, you this, just. No, this I, is, I can this only be the straw that breaks the camel's well, back. Well, well, again, I'll leave the camels to. I'll leave the. I'll leave the. I'll leave the camels to you because there's a few lumps in your argument, mate. Like seriously, seriously, if you want to put it to me that seven dollars fifty per hundred dollars is the highest, and because it's higher than what happens in Florence or New York or Auckland. Uh, mum and dads are worse off. That's just not right. That's just not right. People need somewhere to live. Everyone needs somewhere to live. Journalists do need to be called out almost as much as politicians do. And even though they're not the most important part of the political system, they do play a critical role, but they just need to be better at their jobs. And as Julia Gillard said, stop writing crap. It can't be that hard to do. Yeah, and having been hard on the government, there's been stuff that the government has done that is good which we can't say for the last nine years, there was very little good stuff and most of that was accidental. We need to hold the government to account. And if we can do that with our lesser budget and lesser reach, although do tell your friends, how hard could it be for a mainstream journalist with access to much more than we than we do to actually do their job properly and ask sensible questions? 
it got really embarrassing to watch journalists ask the stupidest questions of Dan Andrews. It's incredible how very few other journalists call out. And you can see the look of frustration on their face when noted journalists from particular news organisations ask patently ridiculous questions. And you can see serious journalists shaking their heads and trying not to roll their eyes, and yet no one says that was a stupid question. And it's okay for the press to hold each other to account too, and not in the way that they often do with petty arguments and stuff reaching back 400 years, back when they were both cadet reporters with the Daily Mirror. (laughs) You know, it's okay to hold the press to account and then hold yourself to the same standards that you hold others to. And speaking of the media, last week we also discussed how politicians do play the media and journalists and then they all go along for the ride. Last week it was Scott Morrison and this week it's Scott Morrison again. And there were those big news articles on pretty much all of the media outlets about how Scott Morrison has secured a book deal with Harper Collins Christian Publishing, which is owned by News Corporation. Now, I really don't care too much about the content. I really don't care about the fact that it is a book by Scott Morrison. He is a former Prime Minister and there is a public interest in him as a former Prime Minister. Maybe how on earth did he get there? But that's a separate issue. My issue is that the book hasn't even been completed and it is going to be released in mid-2024. But at this stage, this is just a PR exercise and lazy journalism. And you know, shouldn't we wait until the book is actually released? It's not like Scott Morrison is like George Martin or Stephen King or J.K. Rowling, where there's a big buzz about their next book. This is all about propping up Scott Morrison and trying to boost his public image and also boost his sales, even before the book is written. So Morrison's publisher would be very happy about this. I'll probably read the book because I do like reading about train wrecks, but I still think that it's better to wait until the book comes out. Otherwise, it's just a sordid PR exercise. They don't promote our books, Eddie, because everyone's bought them. They don't need promotion. So you think we might be a little bit envious? No, no, no. No, I think it's quite the opposite. For the two or three of you in Australia who haven't yet bought the book, there's still a couple of copies left. Rush in before they get done. And <laughs> But in all seriousness, as a historian, I suppose at some point if I decide to study that era of public life in any depth, you'd have to read it even if it's only to to debunk everything he, he says in it about how he did. Well, he claimed that he stepped down as Prime Minister. Uh, no, he was voted out. He lost confidence of the House of Representatives and a majority of seats went to seats that didn't support him as Prime Minister. In other words, he was booted out of office fairly unceremoniously. That it's theology isn't really a problem to me, I don't think he should be disparaged for writing a book on a topic that he wants to write about. I don't think it will sell very well outside of Pentecostal circles. And historians or political nuts who want to have a complete collection of prime ministerial autobiographies, I think it will probably go onto the remainder list in a shorter time than Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott's books did. Julia Gillard's took a while. Kevin Rudd's took a while. Malcolm Turnbull's took a little while, but it wasn't terribly long. And I think I'm not even sure Tony Abbott's was in the 
was on the books before they put it on the remainder table. Oh, well, my main point is not so much about the content. It's about why is yeah, this yeah. generating so much news. It was actually a lead article on the Guardian website for six hours yesterday as their lead story. And, and there's also another news item, which is Josh Frydenberg is not going to be running in the next election in the seat of Kuyong. Who cares? Why is this big news? And that's because he's been appointed to a position at Goldman Sachs. Well, okay, is this news? Is this of public interest? How is it public interest? Let's wait until the election is called to see whether Josh Frydenberg is running for the seat of mm. Kuyong, because at the moment we just don't know. There's no election in the air. There's nothing. So 18 months before the next election, this becomes political news for some strange reason. And that, that's the point yeah, that I'm making. I was heading sort of that way in that the other thing too that we should be aware of is that Scott Morrison doesn't have a great track record in finishing things. So the news may be very premature and it's just a way of keeping his name in the paper. No doubt next week there'll be something else. Started interviews for the book or shipping around for a Netflix TV show or something. It doesn't matter that he doesn't finish it. It just matters that his name is in the paper. Many years ago I worked for a uh, television production company writing content and the head of that company was an ex-Channel 9 executive. And we worked out a new type of show, essentially. It was interactive television, so to call them shows are a bit different. And I said, oh, should we let the press know? And he said to me, don't tell them what you're going to do. Tell them what you've done. It'll last longer and make a bigger impact. And I think he was dead right then, and I think he's dead right now. When you're not interested in the product, you can announce anything. And of course, the press should have said, oh, thanks. When it's done, let us know and we'll promote it then. And we can have the discussions then. Is it good? Is it, you know, how consistent is his faith with his actions, etc., etc., etc. If the press is that desperate for content, contact me via the New Politics site and I'll give you ideas for what you could run stories on. There's not much change about the Voice to Parliament referendum. It's less than four weeks away. It's pretty much the same as before, where the campaign of misinformation is still running quite significantly and heavily supported by the mainstream media. There's been the usual division from the No campaign, where they say something contentious every day. Last week, it was Senator Jacinta Price who announced colonisation didn't affect Indigenous people at all. Warren Mundine announced that the best way to get a treaty is to vote No. And there were many Yes campaign rallies all around Australia last weekend, but they were either underreported by the media or just ignored. And anything can happen in the next four weeks, irrespective of what the polls are saying at the moment. But the biggest concern for me is not whether the referendum is successful or not, but the fact that there are so many people that are opposed to it. And just looking back in time, in August 2022, even before any of the details were released, 35%, according to opinion polls at that time, said that they would vote against the voice to parliament. So even before anyone knew what it was all about or any of the details that Peter Dutton kept on asking for were released, 35% were opposed to the voice to parliament. And for me, that seems to be the bigger issue. Yeah, it's really upsetting, actually, how poorly the Yes campaign is going and how much the no campaign has run amok. And yeah, hundreds of people have turned up to no rallies. 
tens of thousands have turned up to yes rallies. I think that's got to be remembered. I did see the ABC had a story on the yes rally where they said it was thousands, but it looked a lot bigger than that. The no rallies seemed to be very pathetic indoor things where everyone was wearing masks, not health masks, but hiding behind things. And you're right. In the same way that the same-sex marriage plebiscite emboldened homophobes and transphobes and that element of society, the voice campaign has emboldened racists. I've seen some appalling stuff on social media about it's not even being hidden anymore. The other thing that gives me a bit of hope, though, is that I'm getting the same type of vibe I was getting for the same-sex marriage plebiscite, that there's a change in the air and the media don't want to report on it for all kinds of reasons. And I'm not prepared to call whether it is enough yet, but I'm hoping that the change in the air is enough. The 18 to 25 demographic seems to be underrepresented in polls. And of course, it's a demographic that's very hard to get a hold of. No landlines, not inclined to answer ads on computers, won't answer phone calls from numbers they don't know, etc., etc. The big majority against is those between 40 and 55, which I find very interesting. And I guess that's where the work has to be done. But it's also the smallest demographic in the country. So the polls are really all over the place with a tendency for no. But the other indicators are showing me a tendency for yes. Rally attendance, talking to people, driving around and seeing the support for yes around the state. The sad thing is, is that it's not going to be a decisive victory if it is a victory. I think it's going to be at least 30% of the people are going to be shown to be on the side of no. And I was going to say on the side of racism, I know a lot of people voting no are voting no for non-racist reasons that they want, that they don't think the voice goes far enough, for example, that they want more. So that the main thrust of the no argument is racism and sowing division and doubt, and it's not a very positive campaign. And one of the key points from the Yes campaign has been, well, what will the world think of us if the voice of parliament is defeated? And I'm actually more concerned about what we think of ourselves if the voice of parliament is defeated. But for me, it's not about self-respect or otherwise if the voice of parliament is defeated or not. If the referendum is lost with 49% of the vote, or if it's won with a 51% vote, that's still a large proportion of people voting against such a simple constitutional proposition that will benefit First Nations people. You know, what will the world think about that? And Australia likes to think of itself as a country that doesn't have problems with race relations. And I think generally it's a country that has got high levels of tolerance and lower levels of racism, if you're comparing it with countries like Israel, for example. But there is still a lot of racism directed towards First Nations people. And it's something that might be dormant for a little while. But when Australia has to stand up and be counted on something significant on Indigenous issues, it always seems to refuse to do that. You'll always get people who are wary of change and will vote no regardless, or will vote against any referendum proposition regardless of what it is. It's a weird situation we find ourselves in in the first third of the 21st century. It's early 20th century attitudes and late 19th century attitudes. And in fact, we can probably go back to notions of Rousseau and the noble savage, etc., that are still being debated here. It's just insane. And because the No campaign has created so much division, corporate Australia has now got a more muted 
support for the Voice to Parliament. The AFL was going to highlight the Voice to Parliament during its final season, which are currently on, but decided not to do that. There was also some booing during the Welcome to Country ceremonies before some of the games as well. Big W decided to drop their obvious support for the Voice to Parliament in their stores because a few customers either threatened staff or complained to management. So it seems like it doesn't take too much. There's also been a battle in the music area as well. Angry Anderson has said that he'll gladly support the No campaign. Apparently Kamal is not supporting the voice to Parliament, although it's not clear whether it actually is Kamal or someone masquerading as him on Twitter who's saying all of those things. And there were massive yes rallies all around Australia last week. And as I mentioned, and there were many people at Redfern Park and the feeling there was one of optimism, and but it was also a case of whether it's a yes or no in four weeks' time, the struggle will continue. The voice to parliament is only really just the beginning, and 235 years of history can't just be undone by one referendum question, even if it does end up being successful. And it might not be in the form that the Uluru Statement from the Heart anticipated, but I think the path towards true reconciliation will continue because it's a never-ending process. Yeah, I think most people do understand that this is a small step of a small step. Could we do more? Absolutely, we could do more. Would more get through? That's less sure. So I guess in the worst case scenario, a small step in the right direction is better than a backward step or no step in any direction. One of the things I did find humorous, Angry Anderson said, I normally keep politics out of things, except he ran for politics a few years back with uh, one of the anti-immigration hard right groups. And this may be one of the reasons that Rose Tattoo haven't remained as beloved as other acts who were around at the same time, because people would prefer their rock stars to not be right wing anyway. Some of these people do have very conservative views on certain things and that's a whole range of things. The fact that so many have come out in favour of The Voice I thought was quite interesting. Peter Garrett has obviously always been a soldier for the left but people like John Farnham and Daryl Braithwaite, I don't know how they voted. I I don't need to know but it's interesting that they came out in favour rather than keep quiet. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.